Well, good morning, church. Are you guys doing well this morning? You doing good? Good. Welcome, Germantown campus, online campus. Shout out to my family tuning in, and a special shout out to baby DD. We love you so much. I'm excited to be up here. I'm humbled, and I feel super grateful. Before I get into my message, I just want to take a moment to thank the leadership here at Life Church. Pastor Aaron and Miss Tammy and Pastor Ryan and Miss Amanda are incredible. They lead our church so well, and I'm extremely grateful that they would entrust me to be up on stage delivering the message this morning. Pastor Ryan talked about you as a church and how generous you are, and you truly are a generous, generous church. Megan and I are so happy that we get to be the youth pastors, but specifically here at this campus, because Germantown campus is a very generous campus, and you are teaching our students generosity. In fact, if you're a youth student, could you just stand up real quick anywhere in the room? If you're a youth student, can we give a big round of applause to our youth students? Yes. Jack, Maddie, Kaylee, the Lanes, you guys are incredible. Thank you so much. They, they gave of their Saturday because they found generosity. They're catching that as a generation. Megan and I feel so blessed that we get to be a part of their story, even if just for a moment. But we believe that our youth students are changing the world, and we are so happy to be the youth pastors here. As Pastor Ryan mentioned, we are continuing a sermon series called Stories They Didn't Teach You in Sunday School. And this week, I'm going to be talking about Elijah, the prophet Elijah. Two weeks ago, Pastor Aaron gave us a wonderful message about Ehud, the left-handed assassin who was known for killing the fat king. If another Bible is written or a story is written, I want to be known as an assassin that was known for killing. He talked about the fact that while the world may see our weaknesses, while we may see things in our life that could be weaknesses, God uses those things as strengths. And then last, year, last week, he talked about Onesiphorus, how all of us in this room need an Onesiphorus. We need a good, godly friend, someone that can come alongside us. When the world says that we can't do it, someone that says, yes, you can, and let's do it together. But today, we're going to be talking about Elijah. Elijah was a, an Old Testament prophet. He was a miracle worker, and he was the mouthpiece of God in this specific story. Now, when I think of Elijah, there's, there's many stories I would have loved to hear about in Sunday school, whether it was when Elijah went to the dying widow and her son and said, if you would trust God with what he's given you right now, he will bless you more than you could ever imagine. And then she trusts God with the, with the little bit of grain that she has. Elijah blesses it. Her and her son don't die, and they get fed until they can grow more food on their own. Or, or I'd love to hear the story, or Pastor Aaron always says it, watch it on the heavenly IMAX, of Elijah beating a horse on a race on his bare feet. Elijah did that. You can read it. But today, today we're talking about Elijah on Mount Carmel and the, the events that happened after that. And if you know that story, you know it's one that's amazing. It's something that I would have loved to hear as a middle schooler who loved action movies and video games. This story, we'll get into it. I'll give you kind of the, the Luke Sparknotes version as we go through it. But if you want to read, you can read the whole story in 1 Kings 18. And so let me just break it down for you, Elijah on Mount Carmel. The, the Israelites are, are under a reign of this king, King Ahab. We're in this town called Samaria within Israel. And King Ahab is the king at this time. Now, before we know this, before we continue the story, we need to know that King Ahab was a bad, a bad dude. He, he was not a good guy. He was, he was a murderer of innocence. He was an idol worshiper, and he encouraged his followers, even forced his followers to worship idols. And maybe the worst decision he could have ever made as a man, he married a mean woman. 
Queen Jezebel. Queen Jezebel was his queen. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. In scripture, it talks about that all the kings before him, King Ahab had done more evil in the eyes of the Lord. So our boy Elijah goes in front of them and he says, look, Israel is in need. Israel is in need. There's a drought. There's a famine. You're worshiping this false God. I'm worshiping my true God. Why don't we have a good old God smackdown, Mount Carmel. Bring your best to be there. King Ahab says, okay, that's fine. So King Ahab rounds up 450 of his prophets of Baal. That's the God that they were worshiping. 450 prophets of Baal. He brings along 400 of Jezebel's evildoers, his wife's evildoers, and he meets, a, or he meets Elijah on the mountain. And Elijah says, here's what we'll do. We'll have one altar, we'll have two bulls, and we'll, we'll have a sacrifice. And the God that answers in fire That's the true God. Scripture says that the God who answers by fire, he is God. So King Ahab says, okay, let's do it. I have 850 people. You are one man. What can you do? And Elijah says, just wait. And so from morning until noon, Elijah says, you know what? You guys need the help. You guys can go first. You can pick whichever bull you'd like. You can kill it however you want. You can prepare it on the altar however you'd like. And then try and get your God to call down fire. And so 450 prophets of Baal from morning until noon begin to shout out to their false god. They begin to cry out to their idol in their life, asking to bring down fire to burn this altar. From morning until noon, nobody answers. And this is why I love this story. If, If you know me, if you've been at a basketball night with me, or sometimes at youth when we're playing nine square, I get a little carried away. I love trash talk, always respectfully, of course. But Elijah, he looks at the 450 prophets of Baal and he says, Maybe you should shout louder. Maybe your God's asleep. Uh, maybe your God's dealing with something else. Maybe your thing isn't that important. You should shout louder. Do more. So this gets the, the prophets riled up. And then for, for the rest of the day, the prophets of Baal, 450 men and women begin to dance around. They begin to shout louder. They even begin to take their own weapons out and draw blood from themselves. And 1 Kings 18.28 puts it like this. So they shouted louder and slashing themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Going down to verse 29. But there was no response. No one answered and no one paid attention. All right, we're going to pause the Luke Spark Notes. We're going to pause the story real quick. This is my sermon before the sermon. I think a lot of the times it's easy to read stories from the Bible. It's easy to read these these stories and see these people and see them making such a fool of themselves and begin to cast judgment or throw stones. I mean, we see them on top of a mountain literally hurting themselves to get the attention of something that never gives them the time of day. But when's the last time that you scrolled through your Facebook wall? When's the last time that you rethought that text that you sent or that argument that you brought up at the dinner table? Listen, there are idols in our lives that we spend time shouting to and dancing for, all for no response to be given. Is there something in your life that you are even hurting yourself over because you're crying out for the attention of it? Are you crying out for someone's affection or attention, some worldly thing that will fade away like a vapor? It's easy to read these stories and to think that's so far away and so far-fetched, but sometimes we need to remember in our lives, we need to keep ourselves in check Idols are still real. And while it may not be a golden god on a mountain, there are idols in our lives, and we need to remember not to give them the time of day. Continuing, continuing on in the story, and this, this is where it really gets good. 
After the prophets of Baal spent the whole day crying out to their false idol, it's from morning until noon and then noon until the evening, Elijah says, okay, you ready to see something real? It's my turn. So Elijah, he goes to the altar and he begins to repair it. He takes his bull, he puts it on the altar, but that's not enough. He takes 12 stones and lays them around the altar to, to honor the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. And then he takes four large jars, fills them with water, and douses the altar with all four of them. One time, no. Two times, no. Three times he takes water and douses the altar because he knows his God is good. So much water, in fact, that it begins to pool around the altar. Elijah gets down in front of the altar. He prays to his God, the true God, the King of kings. And in an instant, fire is brought down and the bull is burned on the altar. But is that all that happens? No. The bull is burned, the altar is burned, the stones are burned, and the water around the altar is licked up because when our God answers, he does more than we could ever think or imagine. When we cry out to God asking him for something, he does more than we could ever expect. When our God answers, he does it in his style. Our youth students say something like this, but when our God answers, he eats and leaves no crumbs, period, T. What an incredible, incredible story. The, the, the victory is delivered into Elijah's hands. 400 evildoers were there on that day. Scripture says that hundreds begin to repent and turn towards God. 450 prophets of Baal were on that mountain. Elijah rounds them up, takes them down to the valley, and kills them all, murders them all. That's a story I would have loved to hear about in Sunday school. Maybe, was it overkill? Maybe. But that's the type of God that I want on my side. The type of God that leaves no question, leaves no room for error. That's the type of God that we have on our side. And while that's an incredible story, and while that, there's many things that we could learn for that, what I want to look at today is the things that happen after this story. The events that follow this wonderful victory that's delivered into Elijah's hands. What an incredible story. The first thing that I want to point out is that unmet expectations fuels fear. And we can read that in 1 Kings 19, 1 through 3. So if you have your Bible, get open to 1 Kings 19, 1 through 3, or if you don't, it'll be on the screen. But 1 Kings 19, 1 through 3 says this, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, he arose, and he ran for his life. Unmet expectations fuels fear. Elijah is on the run from the wicked Queen Jezebel despite the victory that was delivered into his hands just moments before because Elijah made expectations for himself. Because Elijah in his human mind thought that when this victory was given to me, my people will be saved, Queen Jezebel and King Ahab will be off the throne, and I will have nothing to fear. Have you ever been in a situation where an expectation wasn't met? Or where something happened and, and because it didn't happen the way that you had planned out, fear began to creep into your life? In this scenario, Elijah thought that going before the evil king and delivering the victory would free his people, but God had his own time. And so when that expectation wasn't met, Elijah began to fear. He was afraid 
and he ran for his life. Many of us have been in a situation like that, where Elijah turns to fear. Because we have this book, we get to know that there is a better counselor. See, fear makes a bad counselor, but there is a good counselor, and it's faith. See, friends, fear is destructive, but faith is constructive. Fear tells you that you can't do it. Fear tells you that that, that goal, that, that want that you have in your life, that vision that God has placed on your life is too hard, too far-fetched. You cannot do it. But faith says, no, I placed that goal on your heart. I gave you that vision. Don't you know I'll be there with you every step of the way? Fear is grounded in lies while faith is grounded in truth. When God placed that vision in your life, placed that goal in your life, God will never call you to something, to somewhere where he's never been. So have hope. Take truth knowing that if God's called you there, he will walk with you. Fear is grounded in lies, but faith is grounded in truth. Jezebel told Elijah, she said, I'll find you, and I will do what you did to these prophets moreover. It's a lie. Jezebel's spewing lies to, to grow fear in Elijah, and it works so much that he begins to run. But faith is grounded in truth. Listen, the fact that you're in this room today is a victory, and that's the truth. It might not always feel like that because you and your spouse got in a fight or the kids weren't ready on time or you thought the dog was done potty training and then they had an accident. Listen, I've been there. It's tough. But the fact that you're here today, this morning, surrounded by good godly community in a church, in a house of the Lord, is a victory and that's the truth. Fear is grounded in lies, but faith is grounded in truth. Unmet expectations fuels fear. As we continue to read in Elijah's story, 1 Kings 19, 3 through 4, we see that this fear begins to take root and turn into something much worse. This fear begins to turn into depression. In 1 Kings 19, 3, story continues. He came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die saying, it is enough. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life. Take away my life. As Elijah's story continues, the situation goes from bad to worse. Let us not forget the victory that he was just delivered. His fear turns to depression, and his depression forces him into isolation. Depression and isolation go hand in hand. Remember, this is just days, moments after the wonderful victory was delivered into his hands. Depression leads to isolation. Church, this is where the enemy thrives. See, isolation turns our attention inward, forces us to focus on our own shortcomings, our own struggles, our own sins. It distracts us from the needs of those around us, the needs of the church, and most importantly, it distracts us from the victories that the Lord has given us. Elijah turned to depression, which led to isolation, which distracted him from all things around him. Beth Moore, a pastor and an author, puts it like this. Satan loves isolation. He wants to draw the believer out of healthy relationships into isolated relationships and out of healthy practices into secretive, unhealthy practices. He purposely woos us from those who might openly recognize the seduction and calls his hand on it. Let's beware of anything that separates us from godly people. 
Church, we need to be Christians that when we feel fear creeping into our life and turning into depression, we don't run from our community, but we run to it. We need to be a church that's okay with saying, I'm dealing with something, I'm struggling with something, and I need people around me right now. I need friends. I need those Anisophoruses in my life. When the world tells us you can do it alone, figure it out by yourself, self-help, self-love, the Lord tells us, surround yourself. See, Elijah, he went away from his servant and he fell into isolation. But just as we need to be Christians that turn to the church, we need to be a church that turns to struggling Christians. Let us not easily forget the 400 evildoers that repented and turn their lives around. Where were they? Where were they when Elijah was struggling? We need to be a church that is present and available to those that are around us, especially, especially in a time like today. As we look around our country and all the things that are dealing with, Pastor Ryan said it beautifully, I love this country, we are blessed to be here, but right now this country needs Jesus. This country needs a church that loves them no matter what. This country needs someone that says, I don't have all the answers, I don't know why these bad things are happening, and I can't be there with you always, but I can point you to someone who will be. The church needs to be someone that isn't pushing a political agenda or pushing their own opinion, but is simply pushing love and acceptance. Faith without deeds is dead. We need to pray for these people, but we need to be there for them. We need to be a church that will come around Christians and show them you love them, not okay with them turning to isolation. Listen, if you're in here and you're struggling with fear or depression, or you're struggling with a mental health issue, I want you to know that you are loved and you are seen. You are a son or daughter of the King of Kings, Created on purpose, for a purpose. You are loved and you are seen. I will never have all the right words to say to every person struggling with depression or fear. So now again, I speak to us as a church family. Let us be encouraged today. Let us be challenged today to be a church that will run to those that are struggling in our lives. Listen, when the stories are written about my friends... And the trials that they overcame, and the fear and the depression that tried to bring them down, but it wouldn't. I don't want to be written in that story like the men who followed Jesus when he was given the cross. Falling asleep at the garden, running from struggle, running from their friend, denying that they even knew him. No, when the stories are written about my friends, I want to be like the women that followed him to the cross. The women who every step of the way were saying, we love you, God. We're here for you, Jesus. What can we get you? Crying out to him, worshiping him to the bitter end. Until the last breath was given on the cross, those women and the disciple John, shout out John, were there at the cross. They were there ready and willing. They were there as a strong community. I want to be like those strong women. Let me tell you, as a youth pastor, the world needs more church godly strong women because our young women in our youth ministry are looking for any reason to be loved and they need to look to you. If you're a strong woman in here, I love you. You're incredible. You will do so much more for the women in our youth ministry than I ever could. And I'm thankful for you. You are incredible, and you are needed desperately. Depression turns to isolation. Let us not be Christians that turn to isolation, and let us not be a church that is okay with our fellow Christians turning to isolation. Elijah receives the victory, yet his worldly expectation was not met, 
Fear began to creep into his life, so he ran from his community. When fear creeps into our life and depression begins to take root, we need to be a church that is okay with asking for help. And when we come to that point, in Elijah's story and in our story, God will meet us in the midst of our struggle. This is where Elijah's story comes to an end. 1 Kings 19.5 goes like this. And he, being Elijah, lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. God meets us in the midst of our struggles. The victory is won for Elijah, but still fear begins to creep into his life, and that fear turns to depression, which leads to isolation. But our God is a God that meets us in the midst of our struggles. Church, listen, I don't want this sermon to be one where you come and you leave feeling worse than when you entered in these rooms. And I don't want it to feel like I'm casting judgment or throwing stones if you're dealing with anything that Elijah is dealing with in this story. But what I am trying to say and what I do know is that our God is a God who is not okay with us being stagnant in that bad position. A God that is not okay with us just living in depression or living in fear or living in isolation because our God is a God that delivers victories. Our God is a God that wants to take our hand and walk out of that season, walk out of that, that feeling of depression or grief or sadness, whatever it is, because our God is a good God, but we can't do it alone. See, even when Elijah was feeling this way, even when he came to the point of asking for the Lord to take his life, God met him there because it's not up to us. Because the things that we say, the things that we do don't matter. God has already won the day. Show me a relationship like that. Show me a relationship where God will come into the life of, or, or, or someone else will come into the life of someone that time and time again turns them away, runs from them, denies them, sins against them, actively lives against. That's the God that says, you're still my son. You're still my daughter. I love you. I will come to you, I will meet you in the midst of your struggle. There's no worldly relationship like that. Listen, my parents, Jack and Jane Kramer, are incredible. If you've ever met them, you know they're incredible. But I was kind of hard to, to raise growing up. I can admit that. I'm 23 years old now. I can admit that. So I remember coming down Division Road after getting dinner at what is now Mamma Mia's and I was putting up a good old-fashioned Luke Alloy's hissy fit. And I remember being in the back of my minivan saying, you know what, I'd be so much better if I could just live on my own, run away. I was like eight at the time. My mom pulls over the car and she says, okay, do it. And I'm like, oh, shoot. Put your money where your mouth is. So unbuckle my seatbelt, tuck my little chubby fat in, and I get out of the car and I begin to walk away. My mom kind of just stands there. She's like, give it time. I hear the coyotes howling in the distance and I see an owl or something. And I run instantly back into the car, instantly back into the car. And while I, I don't say that to say that my parents did this crazy form of punishment and they sent kids out into the fields with coyotes, my parents are human at the end of the day. But there is no relationship like the relationship we have with the father. The father wouldn't even open the door. He wouldn't say, 
go. No, God meets us in the midst of our struggle. Simply put, it's not up to us because we don't hold the same power that God holds. If I held the power that God held, I'd be a little bit taller, Jedi's would be real, and I would have a mustache like Greg Seabach. But I don't hold that power (laughs) because it's not up to us. I'm a youth pastor. I love illustrations. So one of our youth students, Chase Conkey, could you, could you come out here, Chase, and bring out a table? Could we give Chase just a big round of applause as he helps create this illustration? Chase is going to put all these different vials of water on top of this table. Like I said, you know, with youth, you only get so much attention now. Some people are like, oh, he's doing something cool. Now we'll pay attention. But listen, it's not up to us. We can't do it alone. We were never created to do it alone. We need the Father in our lives. So this is us. This is you. This is me. Created perfect, clear, wonderful, holy. There you go, Grace. Created perfectly in God's perfect image. And then we're born and we enter this world. And sin begins to corrupt us. It begins to make us this this nasty color. It begins to hurt us, the, the hurt that we have in our life the sin that we have in our life, the depression that we have in our lives, the times that we're afraid and we run from God begin to turn us into this dirty brown color. And we can try, we can try and take water out and and make ourselves better, but in the end it would just leave us worse off than we started. And so there comes a point when we need to understand that we can't do it alone. We need to allow God to meet us in the midst of our struggle through his one and only perfect son, Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice. We need to know that we're dirty and unclean, and we need to ask God to come into our life. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, make me holy again. And Jesus comes into our life. He gives of his whole life and makes us pure and holy again. Was it because of us? No, it was because of this perfect sacrifice. Will there be trials again? Yes. Will we mess up again? Yes. But it doesn't matter everything that the Lord or the world throws at us because the Lord has already won the day and once again we are clear in the sight of the Lord. Simply put, it's not about us. Our accolades, our accomplishments, they don't matter. It doesn't matter. And that's what the world doesn't understand. We try and be good enough. We try and be, be smart enough. We try and lift that heavy weight. There will always be someone better. There will always be someone smarter. There will always be a prettier girl. Her name's Megan. We can't do it alone. What we do doesn't matter. And so we need to come to the end of ourselves and say, God, I need you. I'm weak without you. And God will meet us in the midst of our struggle. It's not about us, and that's not something that we should cower in the face of or fear, but rather we should take joy and rejoice because the Lord has already won the day. Jesus defeated hell, death, and even the grave, and we have access to that perfect eternity. Now we are seen as a pure sacrifice through the Lord's eyes, but was it because of us? No. Was it because of our accomplishments? No. It was, it is, and it always will be because of a heavenly father who saw his creation, his sons and his daughters suffering and moving further and further away from him. And instead of saying, get rid of them all, wipe the slate clean, get rid of them all, we'll start over. He thought in his infinite wisdom, knowing what we've done, knowing what we're doing and knowing what we will do, he thought in his infinite wisdom, I will send down my only son, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb, 
to go through the life that they're going through, to live on this world and go through every single thing, tried and tempted in every way, but yet without sin. And when those perfect 30-some years are up, he will go and pick up a cross created from a tree that I created from the heavens, and he'll die on that for them because they deserved it, but I, in my infinite wisdom, thought that they are worth it. Is it about us? No. It's about the father that sent his son. And when he was killed and put in the tomb and the stone was rolled away and the world began to toil because it's dark without Jesus and evil began to celebrate because they thought they got him, we can take hope and rejoice knowing that in those three days, he was rescuing us from hell. He was defeating the enemy, defeating sin and offering us this free gift of salvation because our God is a God that meets us where we are. So thank God it's not about us. Thank God that he doesn't always give us what we want because if he did, Elijah would be dead under a broom brush and that would be the end of his story. Thank God our worldly accomplishments don't matter. Thank God our repeated failures don't have the final say. No, instead, church, Elijah's story Onesiphorus' story, Ehud's story, every story in here that they teach you or don't teach you in Sunday school is about a father who provides, a father who delivers victories, a father that combats our fear with faith, a father that is always around us even when we don't feel him, and a father that meets us in the midst of our struggles. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are good today, tomorrow, and every day to follow, and you have been good. We thank you that when unmet expectations in our life begin to, to bring up fear, you combat it with faith. We thank you that when depression turns to isolation, you've given us a church, you've given us people to surround ourselves with, and you've never let us. But most importantly, God, we thank you that you meet us in the midst of our struggle because you are a good, good Father. We thank you that it's not about us. We thank you that in moments like that, we can be still and know that you are good. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be encouraged today, that we would be excited to serve you better in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.